in late May 1916, in the small French village of Villeray, the Germans executed four soldiers, two British and two Irish. They had been hiding behind enemy lines since August 1914, disguised as local farm labourers. But who were they? And who hid them? And who betrayed them to the Germans? This is the story of Private Robert Digby, the 1st Battalion, the Hampshire Regiment, one of the Villeray Four. My name is John Pope. I'm a volunteer speaker with the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission and a story moderator on the Forevermore series, which details the lives of people who died for their countries. I have an interest in the ordinary men and women who served in extraordinary times. But where did they come from? What did they do before the war? And why did they join up? Some were volunteers, and some were conscripts. Some had the time of their lives, while others were scarred mentally and physically, or simply failed to return home. They weren't all heroes, and they weren't all decorated. But for most, war at home and abroad was an experience which shaped them and changed them. Drawing on books, official records, internet resources and the personal recollections from friends and families, I've pieced together just some of the stories of those who served. Join me in this episode, part one of two, to learn more about Privates Robert Digby, William Thorpe, David Martin and Thomas Donohoe. Robert Digby was born in 1885 in Northwich, Cheshire, the son of Robert and Ellen Digby. Robert Senior was a colonial soldier serving in India, but was seriously injured in a hunting accident. Ellen Digby was a fishmonger's daughter from Northwich, and Robert Junior was born while the family were on home leave in England. His younger siblings, Thomas and Florence, were born in Bengal, before Colonel Digby was sent home in 1908. His injury was such that he'd been invalided out of the army, and the family settled in Totten in Hampshire. As with many returning colonial families, the Digbys had few home ties, and little connection with Hampshire. Robert Digby Jr. was restless, and tried his hand at various jobs. Horse trainer, chicken farmer, and a spell as a waiter in Paris, where he learned to speak French. A skill which would serve him well later on. By 1913, and with a series of failed career attempts behind him, Robert Digby joined the Army, the 1st Battalion, the Hampshire Regiment, at Winchester, completing his training by early 1914. When World War I started in August 1914, the Hampshires were one of the regiments which comprised the British Expeditionary Force and they were sent immediately to Belgium and France for the early engagements with the German army at Mons. The BEF, a small mobile force made up of professional soldiers, was quite different in nature and experience to the vast conscript and reservist armies of France and Germany. The opening shots of the Battle of Mons were fired at dawn on the morning of Sunday the 23rd of August, as the men of the 4th Middlesex Regiment 
repulsed the German cavalry, who were attempting to cross the canal via the bridge at Oberg. During the first hours of the battle, the weather was misty and wet, and the British were still uncertain of the numbers of enemy units massed on the far side of the canal. By ten o'clock in the morning, the day had brightened up, and enemy fire had intensified, and it became clear that they were facing a huge German force. In total, the German forces at Mons, which were commanded by General Alexander von Kluck, numbered about six divisions, or 160,000 men. The British force amounted to no more than 80,000. Despite being greatly outnumbered, the British soldiers on the south bank of the canal, many of whom were reservists and had returned to the army just weeks before, fought tenaciously through the day. The high standard of British rifle training ensured that an infantryman armed with a Lee-Enfield .303 rifle could fire at least 15 rounds a minute, and the attacking German soldiers suffered very heavy casualties. Despite this stiff resistance, the sheer weight of enemy numbers and the deadly accuracy of German artillery fire meant that the British were extremely hard-pressed from the outset. By 10.30 in the morning, the first German soldiers had crossed the canal, and some British units had been forced to withdraw from their original positions. By mid-afternoon, German infantry units had begun to slowly cross the canal in force, and a general British retreat was underway. Some historical accounts depict the Battle of Mons and the retreat to Locato as an orderly managed affair, while others suggest it was anything but. A Times correspondent wrote, Amongst all the straggling units that I have seen, flotsam and jetsam in the fiercest fight in history, I saw fear in no man's face. It was a retreating and broken army, but it was not an army of hunted men. Our losses are very great. I have seen the broken bits of many regiments. One of the broken bits was the First Hampshires and Private Robert Digby, who had fled after a huge force of German soldiers had swept towards them across a muddy beet field near Harcourt. The depleted battalion moved south, and 300 men briefly held the village of Ligny, before another retreat, leaving Private Robert Digby behind as walking wounded with a bullet wound to his left forearm on the 26th of August 1914. Digby later wrote, When I emerged from the aid post tent, I had lost an army. They had simply marched off without me. He had also lost his Lee-Enfield rifle, haversack and soft-peaked cap, typical of the 1914 pattern uniform. His options were to surrender to the Germans or to try to locate his unit. At that time, rumours swirled of German atrocities, pillage, rape and the murder of innocent civilians and shooting wounded British soldiers as they surrendered. Whatever the truth, Digby decided to move south and west in the hope of rejoining the First Hampshires. The small village of Villeray sits close to the main A26 road from Calais to Reims, to the east of what would later become the Somme battlefield. It is perhaps a little smaller and less populated now than it was in 1914, as the village was destroyed later in the war and some of the inhabitants chose not to return. Villeray was a small farming community and the local people made cloth, farmed sugar beet and were known for wearing wooden clogs 
and speaking an impenetrable patois, common only to the Ain region. When the war arrived in late summer 1914, the unfortunate village along with Le Catelet found itself on the front lines, and later behind the lines. Over four years, war and privation would exact a heavy toll on the villagers and change the face of the region forever. Meanwhile, Robert Digby had met up with another lost British soldier, Private John Sligo, a Welshman from the Somerset Light Infantry. He too had been slightly wounded and was now trying to make his way back to his unit. The two men had met after soliciting the help of the local priest in the village of Gouy, the Abbe Morel, who had rebandaged their wounds. As they left Gouy in the direction of Le Catelet, they were spotted by a squad of mounted German dragoons who pursued the two men up the hill and through the village into open land towards dense woods between Le Catelet and Villeray. Digby, a keen sportsman and only lightly wounded, plunged into the dense undergrowth. Sligo was caught by the leading cavalryman and shot dead. The dragoons rode up and down the outside of the wood looking for Digby but the underbrush was too dense for the horses. According to the villagers, after a while they rode away, leaving the dead soldier in the field. Private John Sligo was buried in Villaray Old Cemetery, the first of 19 to be buried there between 1914 and 1918, as the area saw sustained action later in the war too. Digby wasn't the only soldier lost behind enemy lines. A trio consisting of William Thorpe, a Liverpudlian from the Royal Lancaster Regiment, and Privates Thomas Donohoe and David Martin, both of the Royal Irish Fusiliers, were hiding in dense woodland nearby. At one point the band of fugitive soldiers numbered nine, but two escaped towards Holland and one was later caught by the Germans, trying to escape towards the east. For three weeks the soldiers lived in the open, in an old quarry, eating raw vegetables and autumn berries scavenged from hedgerows. By all accounts they were cold, wet and beginning to fall ill, earlier wounds notwithstanding. The soldiers were discovered and taken in by local landowner Jeanne Magnez, who lived in a chateau to the north of Villarette. For a short time she housed the men in a small cottage on her land, called La Pêcherie. By now, the soldiers had buried their uniforms and were wearing ordinary civilian clothes. Whilst this helped them to move around more easily, if caught, they may be arrested and shot as spies. The front line moved back and forth, and at one point Villaray was back in French hands, but only briefly. Ironically, had Digby and his colleagues stayed in Villarette, they would have been able to rejoin the Allied forces. But they were a few miles north and then behind the German lines. They stayed in La Pêcherie until it became impossible for them to stay hidden. Indeed, at one point, German officers had used La Pêcherie for target practice, little knowing that enemy soldiers were hiding within. By October, the mobile battle was over. The armies had dug in and the trench lines had begun to solidify along the familiar front, which would remain for four years, stretching from the Belgian coast near Newport to the Swiss border, over 450 miles.
Villaray had a local German commandant, one Mayor Kyle Evers, and he began implementing a series of punitive restrictions on the local residents, confiscating food, fuel, furniture, wine, bicycles, and threatening reprisals for misdemeanours small and large. Jeanne Monnier was sheltering the soldiers at great personal risk, and it was known among some people in the village that British soldiers had been trapped behind the German lines. The French villagers felt duty-bound to protect and help their allies, but how? And what would happen to them, both the villagers and the soldiers, if they were found out? Mayor Evers was a small-town bully and crook, and would clearly stop at nothing to ensure that no British soldiers were hidden in his district. Following a meeting with the village elders, Manier and the local mayor, Parfait Marier, agreed that a new plan was needed. The soldiers should be hidden in plain sight among the villagers and pass themselves off as farmhands. Whilst Robert Digby hid in a tiny room in a villager's cottage, as a French speaker he was able to move around more easily than the other three. Thorpe only had to open his mouth to be identified as not French, whilst Donahoe was tall, with auburn hair, and looked rather out of place among the locals. Martin was suffering with fever and was carefully tended to by Donahoe. Despite being in the same regiment, the two men had barely known each other and came from opposite sides of the religious divide. They soon became firm friends, but had to stay out of sight as much as possible. As it was, Digby came to be taken under the wing of the Dessen family. Jules Dessen and his wife Eugénie and their daughter Claire lived in Villeray with the matriarch, Marie Coulette, one of the best known and perhaps most feared characters in the village. They were intrigued by this charismatic Englishman, who spoke good French and seemed to be well-educated and sensitive. He was acutely aware of the danger his presence posed for the local villagers. The descend daughter, Claire, was only 19 years old and widely regarded as the prettiest young woman in the village. Before long, she and Robert Digby, ten years her senior, had embarked on a passionate relationship and by the spring of 1915, Claire Desen was pregnant with Digby's child. But what did their future hold? Fugitives behind the lines, in a war only just begun, despite the prevailing view that it would all be over by Christmas. In part two of this episode, we'll hear more about Digby, the Desen family and the villagers of Villaret. What drove Mayor Evers to inflict such suffering on the villagers? Who was involved in the betrayal? And what happened to Claire and her soon-to-be-born child? I'd like to thank Ben McIntyre, author of A Foreign Field, published in 2001 by HarperCollins, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, for access to their archives, and The Long Long Trail for some of the photographs on the episode extras page on the Those Who Served website. Until next time, thank you for listening to Those Who Served, with me, John Pope. You can listen to the show via the website, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or a host of other platforms. If you listen on Apple, please leave a review, as it makes the show easier for other Apple users to find. You can follow the show on social media, 
via Twitter at those who served or on Instagram those dot who served. You can show your support for this free podcast by clicking on buymeacoffee.com on the those who served website. All funds are used to cover the costs of research, production and syndication. You can join in with the show by sharing what details you know of a family member or friend who served in a 20th century conflict. Contact me directly by email at info at those who served.co.uk. Thank you. <laughs>